Welcome to After the Deluge. I'm Justin Cox, and guess what? We've landed ourselves a beauty for this one. Our guest is Omaha, Nebraska singer-songwriter Connor Oberst, whom you probably know. He comes to us from his home in L.A., and I'm coming from a public library in Northern California. Absolutely massive thanks to Tim Kasher, Todd Fink, and all the other kind people who maybe kind of passed it along to Connor and maybe told them that the show didn't suck. And while we're here, thanks to every guest we had this year. They are Tim Kasher, Ian Cohen, Justin Corwin, Claire Carasillo, Todd Fink, John Orr, Per Davidson, Reed, Lizzie Spellcraft, Rob Harvilla, Emily Kitchen, Michael Tedder, Ryan Page, Brian Howe, Evan Bailey, Dominic Ranzani, Ben Dolnick, and Mark Hogan. Uh, That's a beautiful mix of musicians, writers, uh, fans, and combinations of all those things. A bunch of smart people, very thoughtful, funny, and just great to talk to. If you're coming to this as the first episode of the show you're listening to, I strongly suggest you go back and uh, start with that Tim Kasher episode which situates you in like Omaha circa 1997 or something, and then just kind of carries you forward from there. Take it in order or pick and choose the ones you want to listen to. But um, if you're here listening to this now, you'll find something to love in those episodes too. I'm going to keep this intro pretty short because Connor was not only generous with his time, but just generous with himself broadly. Um, In this conversation, we talk about everything from Jackson Brown to emo, pitchfork reviews, Connor's media diet, books on tape, AI and chat GPT, dropping SAT words into songs, that emo festival in Las Vegas, the canceled Houston show, writing songs to impress Tim Kasher, Todd Fink, and Ted Stevens as a teenager, his feelings about fellow Omaha export 311, and way, 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 way more than that. This episode came together quickly. Connor recorded from his home while I checked out a room in the local library adjacent to my old high school while visiting my family in California. His internet was not the best, and mine took an absolute shit when that high school let out shortly after 3 o'clock, and the library filled up with a bunch of kids who played some online video game. So you'll catch a little bit of like that digitally compromised Zoom noise from those first couple of minutes, but then we hit record on our iPhone voice memo apps and captured this conversation there for the remaining hour and a half, and uh, you're going to feel like you're sitting in my library or on his little uh, semi-outdoor back porch in Los Angeles. His basement is flooded. His dog Petra is cruising around. It's an immersive experience, and I loved it, and I think you will too. Bright Eyes has three more companion EPs coming out soon, and we talk about those in this episode. They're also headed out on tour with a bunch of cool artists this spring. Favorites like Azure Ray, Neva Denova, and Cursive, as well as Maya Hawk, Tim Kinsella, and Jenny Pulse, and the Texas band Good Looks, whose record Bummer Year is one of my favorites in a long while. Definitely go listen to that record. This show is made entirely by me, Justin Cox, at my home in the Pacific Northwest. If you'd like to support its creation and get some cool extra stuff, including a zine that I made all about this season of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash after the deluge, name of this show. It's just one very simple $5 tier. Um, Not many frills or perks besides getting the episodes early and ad free. And the zine, I made a limited number of those, and I sent out the first stack of them. So yeah, if you want to support the show and that kind of thing sounds cool to you, go to patreon.com slash afterthedeluge. You can find me on Twitter at the handle Routine Layup. And if you're a writer or podcaster who wants to talk about Bright Eyes, Jackson Brown, any of this kind of stuff, uh, you can reach me at delugepodcast at gmail.com. 
Thank you to Love is Real for letting me drop every episode of this show into your community. And this episode is dedicated to Matt Blake, with whom I had plenty of conversations about Connor Ober's songwriting, Bright Eyes, and music in every sense of the word. Here is my conversation with Connor Oberst. But me, I'm a single cell on a serpent's tongue. There's a muddy field where a garden was, and I'm glad you got away. But I'm still stuck out here. My clothes are soaking wet from your brother's tears. Connor Oberst, thank you for coming on this podcast. You're you're the ideal guest. Well, thanks, Justin. Thanks for uh, going through the catalog. It's, I'm very impressed. What what I allowed myself with this one, when I did the Jackson Brown one, I did them week by week, and it was exhausting and a lot. And with this one, I just let myself do them as they came. And it felt like over the last like six months, I kind of traveled 25, 27 years in time through music, which is really, really interesting. Like It's like a... Like, oh, wow, it's the late 90s and I'm graduating high school. Oh, we're going to war now. And look, he's singing about that. Oh, we're like, it really felt like some speed run through the last 25 years, which is, it'll make you think about stuff, you know? Like you were saying before we started recording, it is like trippy to realize like, you know, all these different times in my life are like documented, you know, it's a weird situation <laughs> i know no it's it's uh most people start off writing that stuff and kind of banging out their little like let me figure out how to do this things and then they get to be like all right i get to hide that and like debut myself when i'm 24 or whatever 20 years old or whatever you got a unique unique scenario there it's just all there one by one two department stores we walk through the Forest of designer clothes You touch me and smile No start you off with a question that is like i consider this i was kind of considering this in my mind as like the bright eyes record intro track of questions that is very specific to some people will will want this and some people might want to skip it but um i've heard relation like passing mentioned by you of jackson brown many times which has a direct connection to this podcast everything from gary burden and and that album cover he designed the analog recording style of i'm wide awake it's morning your family listening to this music but I'm curious if that's an active, active songwriting influence. Active. What's your relationship with him and his music? I mean, I love his music. Yeah, I got to meet him through my friend Gary Burden, R.I.E., who's a great artist and made basically like every kind of record from California, like album covers, like in the '60s and '70s, like Mamas and the Papas, like every Neil Young record, The Doors. I met him playing at one of Neil Young's uh, Bridge School benefits. And we just became strangely like really good friends, even though whatever, he's like 40 years older than me. I guess through him, I I met Jackson and he's so gracious and 
sweet, genuine person. I, I think I saw him, I guess it was kind of like right before the pandemic. So it's been a few years, but yeah, he's amazing. And yeah, I grew up, my, my parents loved, loved Jackson Brown. And at some point I got to introduce my parents to Jackson Brown and I, felt like an achievement in itself because they were you were able to do that yeah, yeah cool that's great was that when you're hearing that stuff as a kid and it's just sort of around you and you're hearing this music and and entering into a world where you're going to start writing songs and stuff was any of that uh landing on you that way the future hides and the past just slides england lies between floating in a silver mist so cold and so clean California shaking like an angry child will Who has asked for love and is unanswered still And you know that I'm looking back here Oh, for sure. You know, you remember like 120 minutes like on MTV? Yeah, That absolutely. was like the alternative. It was like on Sunday nights. My brother and his friends would like record it on VHS every Sunday night. And like, uh, I was kind of late, but I would like sneak down and watch it. So, you know, he got me into, you know, REM and Cure and Smiths and replacements and, you know, all, all that kind of era of, you know, for lack of a better word, like alternative. And then my parents, you know, they loved Paul Simon and Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell and you know tom petty all that kind of stuff so they have two kind of i guess generational landmarks as far as music that i and i like them both honestly like equally and i tried to i don't know when i started making music I, they were all i think influential I mean, it seems kind of fair to say, like I could, I could hear it in the music early on that it do, it does sound like a concoction of uh, folk musicians you're hearing from your parents and punk music you're hearing from your friends. Like those, it all kind of that kind of feels like exactly what. Yeah, I, I think. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know how like conscious I was of what I was doing. Honestly, at the time, I just was making music that appealed to me. But I know that like all of that, like the stuff I heard from my brother and like my older friends and the stuff I heard growing up from my parents like definitely informed everything I did because I was kind of all you know crammed into my brain somewhere and probably came out in like a twisted manner but you know those were the ingredients yeah, yeah. I guess. How do you feel as someone who was the the records stay right the documented thing stays what it is you continue moving on how do you feel about that being there and documented like is that cool and good or is that weird and awkward i mean i guess it just you know it is what it is i uh 
um, yeah, there's a bunch of it that I is kind of embarrassing for sure. But like, I think that it's also like it, I got like nothing to hide, you know. Like when like you find out like someone was like in the you know Mickey Mouse Club and then they like have to like change their image and be like now I'm like down and dirty, edgy, you know. It's like my shit. You can just find it all. You can like watch like every progression is it's right there. So. In that sense, I'm kind of free of having to, like, hide anything or, like, reinvent myself or whatever, you know? Yeah, there's some there's some freedom and beauty in just having that stuff out there. I guess you're not in control of how someone decides to interpret it or whatever. Like, I listened to your interview on the, the washed-up emo thing, all about emo and everything, and, like, you can count me among the people. I think because I was growing up with and attaching to that same kind of folk music you were talking about while also, mm. like treading into like discovering the, the the punk bands I was seeing with my friends and everything that when I heard bright eyes, I was simultaneously learning about the word emo at that time. And was just, I was like, I, I was like forcefully rejecting, like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like all, like almost all music is emotional in some way. Like, what are we talking about? This is, this is, this no, is, I, fa- I found it baffling too. Like we, we, I mean, I remember actually specifically like the first time, Command Arena is like my high school band. We were we were actually out here on tour, and yeah, I was probably like sixteen, so I was like nineteen ninety six, and like we played somewhere. I think we played like Spaceland or whatever club, and then this like girl after the show was like, "You should play it. You should have played at the whatever the other club was, because like that, that's where all the emo bands play." And I was like, "Emo." Like, and then I, you know, figured out, like, yeah, but I'm like, yeah, emotional, isn't emotion part of music? I mean, unless you're, like, Devo or something, it's, like, who, like, specifically tries to take it out of their music, you know? Yeah. I feel like it's kind of, like, an uh, essential part of music. In my mind. What is a love song? What is like all like the tropes we say about country songs? Like it's broken yeah. hearts. It's like, yeah. wow. but it, but it's because I mean, emo is its own very real other thing. Like there's a genre and a history and there's a thing there. You guys covered that well in that conversation, but it was like in the moment as a person who didn't know, I just remember like just really rejecting it. And what's come up a lot is like my high school friend, Ashley burned me a few CDs, like get up kids CDs. And one of them was fevers and mirrors. And, I can remember being one of the people, one of the guests on this podcast talked about like the long intro tracks as like shaking off the squares. And I wasn't looking to like this music. I'd never heard of Bright Eyes and I didn't like the the word emo or whatever. I was like on principle, it seemed weird to me. And I remember hearing the intro track and like being like, nah, I'm, I'm cool. And it like sat in my car for like three or four months until I eventually got past that into like songs two, three, four, five. I was like, this is just good. This is just really cool songwriting. This is just good. Soon all the joy that pours from everything makes fountains of your eyes Cause you finally understand the movement of a hand waving good Not only are you young and making that music but the part where you're you're among like kind of uh, an indie punk scene, a pretty special one, like in in Omaha, Nebraska. Clearly, the part where you're in that late '90s, like sort of slacker, kind of like don't care, just bang things out, is like I remember being heavily heavily affected by that 
like inclined to act that way too but you really did seem to make like from fevers and mirrors to lifted to the two albums in a day thing like did you seem to 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 reach for something grander or more ambitious you even talk about ambition on one of the songs in in one of those records but they're like they're big and they feel almost like thematic or something in in those moments like where what where, where was that coming from and is that correct even i yeah no i i think that the music we were making was whether subconsciously or whatever it i think it was a reaction like i liked you know i liked like pavement and like all that kind of slacker stuff you know but i always felt like we're making like this is our lives and like this is like what we care about most in the world so why would we pretend like we don't care you know and like i almost feel like every record bright eyes has ever made is you know kind of a concept record and it's it's meant to be i don't know they're like little movies or whatever and i feel like a big criticism has always been like it's really pretentious and i'm like well what is pretension you know what is pretension it's like it's like is it just because we care about what we're doing and we're like making choices that are not the easiest things to (laughs) accomplish you know i don't know to me it doesn't feel like pretension it just feels like like we want to make something that's like interesting and new and you know maybe we like you know swing for the fences too much or some shit but i don't know i mean if that if that's the way you are like if if i think there's cool bands like comes to mind like my friend like kurt vile it's like his music has a sort of like laziness to it that's really cool and i like love it and but that's just his that's how he is as a person that's how he's that's his that's his style and it's dope you know but like I, I think if you like are trying to like pretend that when you're not that, it's like gonna end up being lame. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I feel that. I mean, I, I think it's a pretty admirable thing. Like, and you're at that age, even in that moment, saying ambition I've found can can lead only to failure. <laughs> like, that's pretty. It's really the whole deal. Like, if you don't care and you're just banging it out, then nobody, then whatever. Think what you want to think of it. And there's some something. There's some cool freedom in that too. But like some combination of you guys going big in that way and also there's all this it's pretty earnest in a lot of parts you know like it's just like inviting these ascendant new critical music blogs and stuff like that to say to sit to it's just like all right here's a target for you if you want to not like oh sure like we're i mean we are i mean still to this day i i have like slowly like detached myself from like the music industry or like you know i mean i just think like music criticism and you know literary criticism it's just like it's like inherently just just kind of pointless it's like everyone likes different stuff it's like art is subjective and so i don't get what are they called like pms or the 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 k-pop band everyone bms <laughs> the acronym he's looking for is bts i had nothing for him in the moment but you probably knew the answer already <laughs> but you know like i don't understand that music i don't like it but like millions of people like it like i can't like say it's bad it's just like yeah. it's just like some shit i don't get into you know and like no i mean we're like so like 
like used to being like hated and like oh i did i was gonna say the other episode of yours that i like like scrolled through was um i don't i forget the guy the guest but he was talking about um my song uh soul singer and session band yeah and saying it doesn't make any sense well i'll tell you the fucking story hell yeah so do you know who jt Leroy is not by name, no. Okay, J.T. Leroy is an author. He put out a book called Sarah and a book called uh, The the Heart is Deceitful Above All Things. Anyway, he was a big thing at that time. And uh, sometimes, like, publicists, when they're, like, putting together, like, a record campaign, they'll get, like, authors to, like, write the sort of bio that goes out to the yeah. journalists. And um, my publicist who's still my publicist my chloe walsh she's great but she was like oh jt Leroy wants to write the the thing this is for like the wide awake digital ash stuff and i was like cool i had read the books anyway long story long is jt Leroy. there's like a documentary about it that i haven't watched but he's a hoax he, did, he, was, he didn't exist. He was also, like, supposedly tra- transitioning to become a woman. But the books were written by this, like, 60-year-old couple in San Francisco. So they pulled the wool over everybody's eyes in the literary world and the music world. They hired, like, an actress to play him when, like, in, at public events. So it'd be, like, like, twice in New York, I was like, they're like, go, come meet JT. And I'd go to, like, the concert or the whatever, and then it's, like, someone would come out and be, like, because he was all, all supposedly, or they, or him, they, you know, they was supposedly, like, having, like, crazy panic attacks and stuff. So they'd be just like, oh, JT can't come out tonight. You know, he's, like, hiding under a table or whatever. And <laughs> he was also supposed to, oh, another part of the story is, his whole backstory that they invented was that he was like a lot lizard. Like he was a, his mom prostituted him at like truck stops. Um, that's like the basis of like both of his books, I think, or Sarah for sure. Like Sarah was his supposed mom. Anyway, it's really crazy story, but everyone fell for it. Yeah. Like for a minute he was everywhere. Anyway, to do the bio, I basically did an interview. So I talked to JT on the phone for like two hours. And we talked about Joseph Campbell, The Power of Myth, um, you know, which is an interview with Bill Moyers. Yep. But it's basically like a, it's a, just a conversation about comparative religion and how all religions or have the same sort of themes and blah, blah, blah. I love the power myth. Anyway, talk to... And I don't even know who I was talking to. I don't know if I was talking to the actress or the woman that wrote the books. Um, but they they wrote the... They wrote the... The bio that went out with those records. And so when it's like... Whatever I said. Conversation about the power of myth. The postmodern right. author that didn't exist. In this yeah. fictitious world, all reality twists. I was a hopeless romantic. Now I'm just turning tricks. I had a lengthy discussion about the power of myth with a postmodern author who didn't exist in this. Film.
fictitious world All reality twists I was a hopeless romantic Now I'm just turning tricks Just like that soul Everything I write, I know what I'm saying It's not my fault if people don't understand what I'm saying And I definitely don't like take the time to explain myself You know what I mean? So it's like that's just kind of it. And I get it that he probably doesn't know what I'm talking about because he doesn't know that story. Yeah. But to be like, it's just like gobbledygook is like bullshit. It's like, no, you just don't know what the fuck you're talking about, you know? And it's like, if you write for Pitchfork for 20 years, like, that makes sense. You just don't know what the fuck you're talking about, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. I, I was like, I was like, it'll be cool if Connor listens to one or two of these. I just hope he doesn't click on the Casadega one. <laughs> that was the one that had more of that in it. But glad you're here. I read some, a quote of you saying something like, it's being written as a, as a way to process something. What comes out on the other end may or may not make sense to other people, but it's making sense of something for you. And that's the process that's happening. Yeah. Well, I just, I like, yeah. no, I like descriptive language and like evocative language. And I'm less interested in, in most cases, I mean, a few songs being the exceptions, but in most cases, I'm not looking for like a linear progression of the words. You know, it's like, I like little vignettes. I like like more, I guess, impressionistic imagery that makes you think and makes you, you know, you can fill in the blanks for yourself. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to write a, like a direct story song, like A to B to C kind of thing most of yeah. the time. It's like, I like it to be slightly confusing when you hear it, but like if you take the time to like like listen to it more, I think you'll find that there is like I mean, I don't do anything accidental when it comes to my words. You know, they're like yeah, yeah. extremely specifically thought out. So yeah, I just mean whether people receive it the right way is I can't help that, you know. Yeah. No, I love that. I think with criticism, I don't have like a universal feeling about like criticism, artist subjective criticism doesn't have value. I think someone can crack something open by writing about it in a way that's like, oh, damn, now I get that. But like it can. But the idea that criticism is here to tell you whether a thing is good or not or makes sense or not, like. Does the, does the 10 minutes of Desolation Row at uh, Bob Dylan, at the end, does that make any sense? I don't know, but it's cool. I think I think Bobby D's a good example of, like, there's a lot of his songs that you could be like, that means nothing. He's just, but I, I, I kind of doubt that. I think, like, if you go through and dissect them, I think they all mean something, you know? And, yeah. again, whether it's, like, your connection or not, and, like, I don't know. I'm not here to, like, talk shit on anybody. Everyone can write whatever they want. It doesn't, like, it literally does not matter to me. Um, but, I, like, I do sometimes think with that kind of stuff, it's like, well, show me your records. Like, I've been making records since I was fucking 13 years old. I have, like, 100 <laughs> records. So, I mean, let me, like, let me review your record, buddy. I'll tell you what I think about your record. You know? <laughs> I love it.
this is a little bit like psychoanalyzing oneself or something, but like, do you think that that part where the, the end result doesn't necessarily need to make sense, but it's processing something for you? Do you think, I'm thinking about this a little bit in terms of like, I'm making this podcast, right? I'm not making this podcast just to be like, I'm going to talk about each Bright Eyes record. In a way, something's coming out in 99 and then 2022 and then in 20, 2005 and then whatever. There are a bunch of, there's a bunch of songs about a bunch of different things with a ton of ability to interpret them. There are world events happening at all that time. Like, so it's a podcast about Bright Eyes discography or Jackson Brown's discography that's almost like a Trojan horse for me to think and process and about my own life and, and growing up and the world and everything. Is there some scenario where like, you writing songs and like describing like the kind of songs you write and the way you write them. It's like an ability for you to say things you're thinking, things you're feeling in a way that's not just like, here's my megaphone to just say them or my like things I'm going to post on social media, or I'm going to go find someone and just say my thoughts. Is it like a vessel through which you can like sieve that stuff out, let it out? Yeah, no, I think I've always sort of, I mean, I think I've said this in many interviews, but like, I feel that my thoughts are often scattered and if I can write them down into something that holds together as a song, it actually gives me clarity about my own whatever, my own self or feelings or worldview or whatever that I can't really get to without going through the exercise of writing them down. And some people journal and some people write poetry, some people write novels, and some people are scientists, and whatever. People, I think people, I think that's a common universal human conditional thing, which is you're trying to make sense of the world and where you are in it and things you're observing. And for me, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, the way I've been able to do that is by writing songs and through music, and I can't do it any other way. So it's just something that, I don't know, I've always done. And, you know, I always say, like, my favorite feeling in the world is when I finish a song and I like it, you know, <laughs> and I think it's good. Then it's like, that's like, that's like the, that's the high for me, like, Playing a concert, getting clapped, whatever, record sales, all that stuff is pretty, like, ephemeral in my view. But writing a song yeah. is, like, that's that's the shit, you know? That's, like, what, that's what... That's what I'm in it for, you know? Is it something you're doing consistently, whether or not there's an album planned, whether it's Bright Eyes, Solo, something else? Are you just kind of doing it, or are you coming to waves? It definitely comes in waves. You know, I used to write a lot more songs, and it does get confusing. And this is something that I think any sort of musician, songwriter that's, like, been in the game for, like, long enough, like, it does get confusing when it becomes your job and you sort of realize you have to make some kind of output because there's people counting on you and there's contracts and obligations and you know that stuff does change things but I think the best you can do is just try to like remember that the most important thing is that active expression and that self-expression and 
that's what you're putting into the world. That's the thing that has, you know, the potential to last. Like, everything else is really going to blow away, you know, in the wind. It's not going to be here. So, but, you know, hopefully, and with this day and age, with, like, internet and whatever, it's like stuff is there forever. So you used to have to be, like, the most, one of the most important artists in the world for your work to, like, last for like a hundred years you know now you don't now you don't have to be that famous or good or anything it's gonna be there anyway that's true yeah like true. As, as long as they keep building those server farms where they can hold all this shit you know and it's like so it's not going anywhere somebody's somebody someday might listen to it i don't know for better or worse that shit is there um the 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 mid-2000s and stuff you you kind of reference Maybe not that often, but maybe it's just me, like, putting the background of, like, that time, that, like, George W. Bush, Iraq War, post-9-11 time period. But, like, you've kind of referenced cable news and, like, these kind of talking heads. And that was, like, that was that fucking moment. That was, like, it was was a toxic thing in that moment that was just a massive influence. Now we have, that's all pre-social internet and everything like that. You've kind of... And as far as I know, you've more or less bypassed participating in where like online media has gone. What's your like media diet like? What's your approach to consuming what's happening in the world and the Internet and politics, any of that stuff now? I got like fully off, like like everybody, like during the pandemic, you know, I was mostly I was here in this house in Los Angeles with my girlfriend at the time. And it was just the two of us and everyone you know so it was just like talking on the phone and looking at fucking instagram and shit and like i'd never i've never really been that big into like social media stuff i mean obviously we have to do it for the band sometimes but about like two years ago i just like basically cut it out completely from my life so like i don't follow my friends i don't i'm like the last person to hear about anything like, I mean, honestly, I listen to, like, um, you know, I listen to, like, NPR, listen to, like, Morning Edition when I wake up. I guess that's, like, me keeping tabs on, like, the world, you know? I mean, I know that's a yeah. left-wing propaganda machine. No, I <laughs> see, like, I don't know. I think, like... I think the proliferation of things on the Internet and, and different podcasts and social feeds and everything like that, I don't even think you, people can call NPR and PBS liberal propaganda anymore it's it's they're like uh, literally the only ones that are giving you facts yeah i mean i guess you could make an argument that like they're like left-leaning but i mean i don't know to me they're just like the most bland way to hear about what's happening in the world without like a bunch of fucking bullshit you know so that's kind of it that's kind of like all i really do my television is broken right now so I haven't been <laughs> I haven't been that's my dog sorry uh, I mean I used to definitely like watch cable news and shit um, definitely back in that time too and like it was just like the fear machine and like everything you know putting duct tape on everything and fucking anthrax and all that you know I mean it was pretty easy to get sucked into that like little fucking k-hole but like i don't know i don't really do that anymore i try to like i mean i'll listen to like podcasts and 
like audiobooks that I th- I think are interesting, but I honestly I mostly listen to like I have this thing where I can't sleep without like something happening in my ear, which is bad. But I listen to like audiobooks and I try to um pick the ones that are interesting but also like very slow and bland so that I can fall asleep to them. So I listen to a lot of like science and like nature books. I really like this guy. Um, I've heard his name pronounced different ways, but it's, I mean, it's, it's spelled like Thor, but it's like T-H-O-R, but it's, I think it's pronounced Tor. Anyway, Tor Hansen is this guy's name, and he has a book. Did you just say Tor, Tor Hansen? Yeah, do you know who that is? Yeah, dude. Oh, my God. That's, I love that guy. That's unbelievable. I do, like, communications for a marine science organization up here in, in the Pacific Northwest, and this nonprofit that I work for funded a like uh, a recovery plan for this endangered seabird, the tufted puffin. And Thor Hansen wrote that. I went out on a boat with him out to this island with him and his kid to like take pictures. No of shit. Like, totally. I met I met him. Which book are you reading? He's got one called Feathers. Yeah. Which is all about feathers <laughs> and birds. And uh, he's got one called Seeds. Yeah. Which is all about seeds. Um. But I don't know. I just, like, I really, like, uh, he's kind of perfect for me in that scenario because I, like, because I'll listen to the same book every night for, like, a month. And I don't, like, I don't listen the whole way. I'm trying to fall asleep. But I probably know every word of, like, his books because I've listened to them so many. Like, I'm up, like, I'll wake up in the night, and that's, like, why I need it in my ear because then I got to fall back asleep. That's Um, cool. Do you know if it's him reading his own audiobook? It's actually not. And the the narrators <laughs> the narrators are not that good, to be honest. But like like one day I was like, I just I don't even know what the guy looks like. And so I like watched him actually talking, like on like Wired, you know, that the technology magazine. Yep. He's he's like and he's got like a great voice. I don't know why he doesn't narrate his own books, but <laughs> I'm going to hit him up. So was he cool? Was he cool? Was it fun? Very cool. He was very cool guy. Yeah. Yeah, It was like we went out to like tufted puffins are this amazing seabird that like they kind of fly like real wonky, but then they like they dive and they their their wings are evolved for like swimming basically. And they'll dive deep, 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 catch fish. And uh, they've like plummeted in population up in the Pacific Northwest, the Salish Sea, Mm. which is where where I work. And uh, he went out there to help take photos and stuff. I think I shot some video of him on like a rocking boat like that might would make you sick if you watch it, like with the island in the background. Yeah, I I know he like lives off like an island up there somewhere. So that makes sense. Do you guys live on the same island? So I live on Orcas Island, and he lives on San Juan Island, but they're the same mm. archipelago. They're the same, like, there's gotcha. a ferry that runs between them, and they... I love that word. It's a very good word. <laughs> really good word. Well, that's awesome. That's, that's really fun. I think, I think stuff like that, it's weird. Like, when we were younger, I feel like there was, like, a thing, like, people need to be engaged in politics. People need to be knowing what's going on. People need to be in this stuff. And, I, like, I've had this recent feeling the last, like, year, two, three years of, like we kind of maybe need to know a little less like literally the some of the biggest dumbasses i've ever met in my life suddenly care a lot about politics like it's like kind of their whole thing now and it's uh like maybe if we dialed back a little bit and talked about birds on occasion or even some sports or like it's like for too too engaged this is like really fucked up everything doesn't have to be this way 
Yeah, and I mean, not to be a pessimist, but um, I'm like super terrified of this, the whole like AI situation and like the deep fakes and all that stuff. It's like, it's getting so good that like, like we think it's hard to know what's true right now. It's like, I don't know, in like 20 years, it could just be impossible to know anything like <laughs> like re- like reality like really will just be like completely subjective which it shouldn't be art can be subjective reality cannot you know like the whole like yeah yeah you're entitled to your opinion and not your own facts that kind of shit yeah might like cease to exist i got a t-shirt that says everyone's entitled to my opinion you know so that's that's kind of <laughs> i wear that around <laughs> <laughs> that's very good. Um, yeah, no, that stuff I've like been. It's like I'm dipping my toes in in paying attention to it because I know I need to, but don't want to fully think about it. You know, I know where I have landed somewhere is like AI creating art or AI creating the written word or whatever. It, maybe maybe AI could write me twelve song uh, indie folk uh, punk record or something. Yeah. And tomorrow, but what it and and maybe maybe it would sound okay even or whatever. Yeah. But there's no story or feeling or thing behind it. I couldn't have this conversation I'm having with you with it, right? And well, not it, not yet. <laughs> Give it like a decade, and maybe you will. Not you know. Yeah. yeah. We always yeah we always joke about like you know girl boss generator or like sad boy generator just like music that all just it already sounds like ai there's real people making it but it's just like it's true. so so derivative that it's like pointless but yeah i don't know it might you might be surprised how You're good right. it's gonna get like know, quick actually todd fink from the faint who you talked to was he's already like he's always interested in new shit and uh I mean, he's like a true, genuine article genius, but yeah, he's already like, and I think like everybody's gonna do this soon if they're not already, but he's like already like writing songs like with AI shit where he's like, you know, give me the faint in the style of whatever. <laughs> and then he's like, he's like, they come out pretty good, you know? He's like, I know. you know, and then I just like move some words around and I tweak it, you know, I edit it, but like, like, I don't even have to write songs anymore. It's oh, like, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, it's good. It's, yeah. I love, it's very perfect that Todd Fink is that guy. Like, for what yeah. the faint sounded like and for what it is. Like, this is the this is the one I want, like, bent in the direction of, like, crazy, crazy future shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, they've always been so, like, ahead of the fucking curve with everything. Like, they're, like, very uh, amazing this- band. Does this feel on the mark? I was reading I was reading the Meet Me in the Bathroom book, which I really enjoyed, and you're in there a little bit. But, like, the part – I was making this podcast at the same time, and I, and I interviewed Todd and, and also thought about Digital Ash and Digital Learn around the same time that I was reading that. And they're getting to, like – this is not to diss LCD sound system or anything, and I also am deeply ignorant about subgenres of electronic music. But it's like, why, why? – we keep talking about this band as if they're like revolutionizing some kind of blend of punk and dance electronic music, but they're in New York in 2004 and dance macabre. Like this is like, that's like Omaha in 2001. Like there was no mention of the faint 
and this like like LCD sound system was doing something totally novel. I didn't understand it at all. Like it bothered me. Yeah. No, I mean I think like I don't know. I guess I'm like biased for the home team, obviously, but like I think the faint. I mean, not saying there wasn't like a fusion of like dance and punk before then, but they the way they did it, like I think all those bands like. The Killers and LCD and all the... I don't know. All that shit came, like, five years after they started doing it. And yeah. It's like... I don't know. Just look, look at the fucking calendar. You know? It's just like... Yeah. I, th- I think something about it being that many years before and also, like, <laughs> out in the Great Plains. It's, like, not the, yeah. like, hub thing of, like... But, I mean, I guess that might be why. Like, yeah, I, I don't know. No, they... And people, like... I mean, I can remember, like, early faint shows... Like, people were just confused. I see you And they had, like, they were triggering all their lights with their feet, like, guitar pedals. So it's, like, the chorus hits, and they hit the strobe light. And, like, they were, like, their production value was, like, so much above, like, every other band they played that night. It'd be, like, a five-band bill. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) you're, like, in, like, a stadium, basically. And you're, like, what is going on? People, like, just didn't get it. I mean, the only band from back then, actually earlier than then, but I know that the faint loved them i loved them um r.i.p again but fucking uh that band brainiac uh they were so ahead of their time they were making that was the first guy i saw like dance on stage that like made it look cool timmy taylor is the singer who like passed away sadly but um they were kind of like and like nation of ulysses and those bands, there were bands, I mean, there were obviously, there were bands before The Faint that were doing, like, yeah. similar shit, but, like, yeah, it kind of turned into a weird fad and everything sounded, by, like, the mid-2000s, it was, like, already kind of played out pretty hard. Okay, maybe there's a woman somewhere who's still thinking of Can I hit you with just some like one-off random questions? Yeah, totally. We were talking about songwriting earlier, and I you you, you have like a there's like a, a steady thing that I appreciate that feels like 
coming at everything from some unique angle or askew or whatever. And the closest you probably come to directly down the middle, like uh, it's not coincidental that first day of my life is this big thing that a lot of people love. And I love, I love that song and find that to be a beautiful song. Um, tell me if this is ignorant or, or if there's any truth to it at all to say that, like, I feel that if you wanted to, you could sit down and write versions of first day of my life, uh, anytime you wanted to. But what you're setting out to do is not do that. So if you wanna be with me, if these things there's no telling, we just have to wait and see. But I'd rather be working for a paycheck than waiting to win the lottery. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Besides, maybe this time is different. I mean, I really think you like me. I mean, I think it's, as far as, like, if you look at all the music that, you know, I've made and that Bright Eyes has made and stuff, that song is very, it's like a, quite a bit of an outlier and it's sort of a fluke. I wouldn't be like, that's our most famous song, you know what I mean? But, like, so I don't know. I, I, I don't, I, I, I can't say I could just do that all the time. I think that it's, like, sometimes things that feel kind of like not like a throwaway i mean i like i like the song when i wrote it but i mean it's obviously like hyper you know sentimental and you know whatever borderline corny or whatever you want to say but i think that it i mean it, it is what it is it's like i'm I guess what I'm saying is I don't think I could just sit down and write that song over and over again because, like, it happened very, like, organically. I was not trying to, like, write some kind of, like, love song for the ages. I was just, like, I was, like, just writing a, writing a song about whatever, the relationship I was in at the time, and that was that. Tonight is a goddamn song. All you goddamn people. You listen to the record Lifted, and at the very end of it, you get this like long, kind of like opus feeling song, Let's Not Shit Ourselves. That record hangs together in a way that I just love. Like, there's a feel to that whole thing, it feels very communal and everything. When did Let's Not Shit Ourselves come, in, come into that process? Like, was it in mind as you're writing it all? Like, it's this big thing at the end that feels now like it has to be there. But like, when you're making that record, when does that present itself as something that is that long and is that song and is placed there? Uh, that's a good question. I don't. I, I can't. 
remember, to be honest with you. Um, but I do remember, like, at that time, I thought it was somehow cool or... I don't know. I was in a phase where it was, like, writing a lot of verses to things, like Waste of Pain and Big Picture and that song. It was, like, I thought there was something cool about having a song with, like, ten verses. Um, I think it's cool. But, but I used to, like... I actually do that, like, I still do that, like, on, like, a lot of songs, but then I just pick, like, the three I like the most, you know? Which is, I think, also the reason that sometimes the songs might seem, like, disjointed, like, because the topics aren't exactly, you know, connected, you know? I mean, that's, like, uh, whatever your boy was that was talking about Soul Singer and Session Man, it's, like, I do think all those verses tie into I mean soul singer and session band the idea of like a soul singer being like improvisational and like singing from the heart and a session band you know obviously being just people that are hired to play at a studio or like a wedding band or whatever they're just like going through the motions and so that whole idea is like you have this person that's capable of so much more but because of their circumstances is like trapped in this situation where they can't be themselves they can't like they can't do what they're like meant to do yeah and i think like all the verses like connect to that but again that's like maybe that's me not being a good enough songwriter to like get people to make that connection or maybe it's just having like too weird of references that people just don't get because sometimes like sometimes i write words that like only my friends would get the reference you know what i mean like it's such a yeah in inside joke that it's like and i don't so i can't blame people for not getting some of the shit because it's that's like i just it wasn't really explained or meant to be but like i don't know i like i said i like that impressionistic way of writing like in other band like other people's music i I appreciate when like something like makes me be like, what are they talking about? I think it's a thing that share that that some Jackson Brown songs share, especially some really early Jackson Brown songs. It's not like he's setting out to tell a a folk song story necessarily. He's sort of like s- sending off a smattering of feelings and emotions and imagery, and you get to take of it what you want to take of it. You know? Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I think that that to me is more interesting than you know. I mean, there's something to be said for the classic kind of country like linear story song like it all makes sense you know but like I just I don't know I'm not like that interested in that style of writing so I kind of I prefer stuff that's a little I guess a little stranger and I like to hear you know I mean it gets a little dicey when you're you know like my friends like my songwriter friends you know we joke about putting like like SAT words into songs and stuff like that, and like you can like be like, wow, they they they're really just trying to impress me with that word. And sometimes it's cool, and sometimes it's just like ah. But you know, I I don't know. I guess I'm definitely guilty of that. Like I remember being like, I've never heard the word oscilloscope in a song, and like I want to make, I want to say oscilloscope in a song. So like I got it into shell games because I think it's a cool word, you know. Distorted sounds on oscilloscopes Distorted facts I could never cope 
the first song she played was the first track on the record. And like, I think I'd had, had like a couple glasses of wine or something like that. You're just sort of like in the moment of like, I'm ready for this to, to, to fucking hit me. I want this to hit me in a certain way. And she starts with that, uh, track one on the record so it's like the exact process of like putting a needle down on this record that i listened to so much over that previous years and like it like it made i cried made me cry for a second one of those moments where you're like not in control i i I think i i think i cried side stage while i was watching him play i was like yeah i mean she's incredible songwriter and amazing singer and, and yeah and then so. she sang she sang on the on the one of the companion ep like contrast and compare yeah 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 that was very nice of her to do contrast and compare between the busy ones and the ones who don't care until there is no one that you really know So I drift through these days of appointments and promises made that all end up broken and quickly replaced. We called in the old friends and stuff. We had Gillian Welsh on some stuff and obviously like Maria and... um, my friend Alinda, who's the singer of uh, Hooray for the Riff Raff, which is another band I really love. So the next one, there's like the last three. It's like, I guess it's Casadega, People's Key, and uh, Noise Floor, which is like the B-side thing. Sweet. But we got like, yeah, we got like Alinda and First Aid Kit Girls. Yeah, I think that's coming out in like May cool. or something like that. Yeah. Cool. I didn't know that. I knew that some were coming, but I've totally enjoyed those. And like, Scott, it seems to me like what you're talking about is like you make all this music as a teenager. And I mean, that's your own version of traveling back through your life over 25 years, right? Like revisiting these songs and re-recording these songs. Yeah, it was it, it was it was weird to just try to reimagine them in a way that was interesting to us now, and obviously trying to make them different from the original versions and some of the songs we had to like move down like a key or two just because like my voice keeps getting lower and lower so it's like some notes I can't hit anymore but like uh but no it was it was fun it was like I think in the end it was like 54 songs or some shit between like nine EPs so it's really cool. Yeah, yeah it was it was trippy because we like basically moved our whole catalog from Saddle Creek to to Dead Oceans like secretly group, and so I don't know. It's just kind of a a way to like maybe get people interested in some of the older records if they hadn't heard them or. I don't know. Yeah, no, it was like we like a, we like a, we agreed to it, and then like we got like do like the first three and we're like. What did we fucking agree to? It's <laughs> a big job. This is going to take forever. It's, it's funny to have these parallel things of there's this whole other separate like masters thing where Taylor Swift is like re-recording her albums. It's like we got Bright Eyes and we got Taylor Swift <laughs> in, in the studio recording their, their old songs. Yeah. Pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. That's exciting. The Alinda thing. I got my my wife and I went to we went to a, a wedding and 
on the trip for that wedding saw Hooray for the Riff Raff in Dublin and talked to them afterward a little bit because it was like fresh off them touring with you all and they had all kind they had all kinds of nice things to say they said they loved because that yeah. that tour was with them on like multiple yeah, they, of those tours right? they, yeah they toured I mean definitely they toured I mean we had a bunch of different opening bands over I mean on and off we did it for like a year and a half for the Down in the Weeds record but I would say by far they were the band we toured with the most and yeah all very beautiful people and yeah I'd like that's another one where I just like I love her like songwriting so much and just yeah great performer weird <laughs> it was very weird oh, this is my guy what's up Omar hey, what's up, how you doing how old is uh, she how old is she uh-huh. uh she's like two and a half wow she's a little little yeah, she's, she's still a baby let me go and check down there all right cool thanks man my guy Omar he's my basement is flooded so he's trying to fucking fix it up for me damn it nice um sorry what was your last question um no i think i think emo <laughs> emo fest oh, oh the emo fest yeah it was funny it was like you know i honestly didn't connect with that many of those bands at the time i was sort of checked out to that scene i just sort of felt like it was you know we were we were kind of bratty militant indie kids so we thought everything was like hot topic and bullshit but like yeah. I've come to like appreciate like I think Paramore is a great band I think My Chemical Romance is a great band a lot of the bands I just didn't know who they were period <laughs> but yeah. I, mean, I mean if you want the honest scoop it's just that they paid us like a ridiculous amount of money and they gave us like a really good slot like we played like right before like Paramore on like the big stage like the main stage and there was so I mean there's so many people there and all the kids were packed at the front because they wanted to be there Paramore. for Paramore <laughs> like like kind of had like zero idea who the fuck we were yeah yeah and like we were by far like I mean we definitely stuck out like a sore thumb like at that thing cause I don't know just our shit's kind of weird and people were just looking at us very but I always call like our genre like Bright Eyes I always call it like confusion rock it's just like you don't know what you're gonna get it's gonna what be what the fuck is happening it's gonna be weird like I think it's I like it when people leave like confused um I just <laughs> I, I, I guess I have like a demented you... sense of humor or something but no hey good mm-hmm. on you you're up the one that's up there on the stage so the only person who's gonna it's yours to do that you know yeah but we had fun. I mean, it was... I have, like, sort of, like, a... 
48-hour rule with Las Vegas, so I can't stay there more than that long. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's such a, it's a, it's just a, you know, it's a mind fuck of a fucking city. Just, just um, a, a weird place that, yeah, it feels, yeah. it'll make you feel just not yeah. like a human. And so you guys on this tour, when you go out, I know you're going to, like, play some shows with The Faint and some of these other bands and then you're going back to the one in Houston that you guys didn't finish is that was that like deliberate like we're definitely gonna go play that venue yep got a redemption redemption show (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna make it up we're we're gonna make it up we're gonna make it up to him we got some (laughs) special ideas for that show to um make up for it yeah it, it that was a whole another story but um it was actually I mean I bailed I just like walked out the back door and just like kept walking into like I don't even know went to just I just like wandered yeah. around but uh apparently the band stayed and like played and people sang like karaoke and stuff yeah but what's funny about it is that that was one of the nights where we sold like the most merch of like the whole tour <laughs> People just bought everything from the merch booth, which I think is insane. <laughs> I guess that should be the new strategy. I mean, just I have... Like, <laughs> let's just play, like, two songs and, like... <laughs> it's, like, that show that you're describing is the most... is the exaggerated version of it, but I don't know. I, I mean, I won't get into the details, but we are having some, like, internal band problems... I don't know. We were basically like, I don't know. Let's just break up. Fuck this. Let's just go home kind of shit. And I don't know. It just escalated into like, I just didn't want to be on the stage anymore. And kind of just happened how it happened. But I did feel bad for the kids. And we gave every we we gave everyone their money back and stuff. It's like everyone got like right, we didn't I mean, get we didn't get paid. Like we just. I mean, we sold merch, I guess, but, like, we just, we tried to, like, but the the promoters were actually, like, really cool about it, and they're down to, like, have us back, so we're, we're determined to, like... Yeah, it's cool you're going back. I mean, you see, you see stuff about, like, ticketing and concerts and everything like that is in the news all the time now, and... Uh, a, a, sh- a show ending early that you get a full refund that the band is also still coming back to is low on the list of concert injustices. You know, it's like, that's very cool you guys are headed back there, though. Yeah, I'm stoked. Tim Casher came on the first episode of this show. Take care, Take care Omar. See you soon. Thank you. And, and Connor, I'll let you go soon, too. I really uh, appreciate you ch- chilling and doing this. Um, yeah, no, it's nice to talk to you. No, it's all good. I'm just struck by, like, uh, there's, I've kind of, like, there's some beauty in this, like, scene of music you all had that seems, like, very, you're a child, you know? Like, I think I asked him, like, okay, so six years different, so you're 14 and these guys are 20? And he's like, 
you just kind of saw that you, he saw you could write songs and knew your brothers and you were a cool, curious kid and whatever. And he's just like, yeah, he was a young kid. And we made sure that they didn't like drink or stuff too much or whatever, a little bit, but like, he was just there. What was that like for you as now you're the 14 year old and these guys are this, like, were they peers? Were they, I mean, older brother, like, yeah, to you? It, like how'd that feel? I mean, it was, I mean, they were very generous. I mean, basically like. My oldest brother, Maddie, was basically the same age as, like, Kasher and McGinn and those guys. And then there was, like, Ted Stevens, who was maybe a year or two younger. So, like, I mean, literally, like, Tim Kasher and McGinn and, I mean, they were, like, coming to my house to hang out with my brother when I was, like, five years old. I mean, they knew me, like, my entire life, you know? Right, And then when I started making music... Of course, they were, like, I think they were supportive in the sense of how you would just be supportive to, like, a little kid that's, like, trying to do something, you know, very older brotherly, like, ah, that's cool, you're playing a show. And then at some point, I mean, honestly, I think it was, like, Ted Stevens was the first person that, like, he, do uh, you know who he is? He's in cursive, but yeah, he was totally. in like Lullaby for the Working Class. Yeah, totally. Anyway, another amazing songwriter and very special soul. But uh, I think I played him like a song on my porch one day, and he's like, "I'm gonna," he's like, "I'm gonna come back and record you." So he like brought his four track over, and we recorded like water this record like my first i guess record although it was just like a tape but um yeah he recorded it all and he kind of got the ball rolling he also like there used to be this place called kilgore's in omaha that was like a coffee shop slash bar slash they had shows like like simon joiner and like alex mcmanus who's like in the bruce anyway like a lot of bill hoover a lot of these guys that we looked up to played there i think it was like thursday nights there was a thing anyway ted was playing there one night and me and justin my my other brother went to see him and he's like i'm gonna stop my set early and i'm gonna like have my friend connor come sing a song and i got, got up there so nervous i remember like my knee was like shaking i couldn't like hold the guitar and I just like played like one song and then after the show this guy Bill Hoover who's like a great artist and songwriter from Omaha he was like I got another show here like you know this was like May or something he's like another show here in like June like a month away he's like do you have like enough songs to like play a set and I was like yeah, but I was, like, totally lying. <laughs> so, like, I went home and, like, wrote a bunch of songs so I could, like, play a show. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of how that happened. And then, you know, Tim Casher, I always, like, idolized. Like, I love Slow Down Virginia. And he was in a band with my brother, like, in high school. So I always, you know, I always, like, really looked up to him. And then, like... I don't know, kind of out of the blue, he's like, let's start a band when I was, like, 14. I was like, really? You know, it's like I, it's like your hero asking you to, like, start a band with them. So that's when we started, like, yeah. Commander Venus and whatever, the, as they say. The rest is history, but... It's so cool. Yeah, it was, um, 
it was, I was extremely lucky to have like that amount of like encouragement and support from from like people that I looked up to and also like cared like in a genuine way yeah. about me. There's such evident like love and support and community and everything that I just I just think to me it's like okay this podcast is a, a some guy on an island's uh, DIY like project thing that. There's no, there's some, Tim Casher doesn't need to do that. He's the first guest on it. It's not like there was anyone to even be like, hey, this person's been on it, blah, blah, blah. And so to do that and then also assist in the process of having Todd come on and then pass it along to Matt to then have you come on, like, there's like this, like, these people are all so nice to each other. There's such like a communal thing with this that like bands lifting other bands and featuring other people and everything and uh, i don't know I, f- I felt like it was a cool chance to get a, a little feeling of a slice of that like communal support and encouragement to whatever it was like seeing it in action thing and yeah I don't need to go into it with all the details but um you know there was this time where it was like really was it was like a full-on communal thing and it was like the only competition was like I remember for years I was like I was writing all my songs just hoping that like yeah like Tim and Ted and Todd and like all those dudes would like like my songs. Like that was my audience. That was my target audience. You yeah, know? yeah. Like I didn't really think of it past that. Um, and yeah, there was like a just a you know making the label and doing all that stuff together. It was like it was really magical and beautiful and like super like uncommon and yeah, it was just it was a very special thing. You know, and then as everything goes, it's like money gets involved and success and people getting pulled and like labels trying to sign bands and like trying to like, do we stay together? I mean, I remember the faint turned down like a, I wish they hadn't now when I think back to it, but they turned down like a like multi-million dollar like record contract so that they could like stay on the label, which like if they would have just signed they would have they would have beat the fucking killers and LCD to the punch, you know, like they would yeah. have already been huge. Um but they stayed because we thought of it as like this like kinda whatever, sort of like communist, like we're all we gotta all stick together thing. So we all turned down like a lot of opportunities that that we wouldn't have if we didn't have like the friendship that we had. And then, yeah, just kind of, you know, some shit went down with, like, whatever. Some shit went down and, like, everyone started to splinter and, like, do different stuff. And, I mean, I guess that's, like... I mean, you all... It's another version of you having everything, like, on documented record. Like, people who are a core group of friends in high school, it's not like they're all 
it's the same exact group of people with the exact same word the way they were 20 years ago it's like that's, that's how time that's how things progress you know it's inevitable but it's still worth pointing out that all those bands you're mentioning right now have been passed along on email threads by way of me and this podcast like casually and in a friendly and supportive way it's not i don't know that still just felt like a bunch of uh, nice human beings. I mean, I was, that's kind of, like I said to you, I think before we started recording, but that was a big selling point when Matt McGinn sent me the email or whatever. It was just like, you know, Todd did it and Tim did it. And so I just sort of felt like if those guys took the time to like talk about my music, then the least I can do is come on, come on. Bless them and bless you. The Todd one was so funny because I was like, I'm going to talk to him about Digital Ash because my dumb ass is like, yeah, that's got electronic instruments on it. I'll talk to Todd Fink. And I had COVID. So I was like sitting on the bed. I was like, not canceling this shit. And then he, uh, it was like two, three minutes into the interview. He's like, I asked something. He's like, you know, I'm not really the type to remember specific things or blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is beautiful. But it was like, you know, the kind of thing where you're like, did you talk about his hats? I did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The hats are but, like, sick. Talk- they were really amazing. And, and like, I think, I think what it does is the kind of thing where like you think your plan might be something like I'm going to shoehorn a conversation in about digital ash and a digital learn into a conversation with the faint or whatever. And you have all your ideas for, for things. And when you toss that out, the conversation's actually better. Cause you're just talking to Todd Fink about a, a place and a time and art and uh, combining styles of things and, this is way better. It was cool. It was. I, I. It wasn't. I had to cover the digital ash stuff a little, like my own. After that, a little bit more. But like, it was beautiful to talk to him. Yeah, he's a, he's an interesting guy. He does not. You know, the whole idea of like, like not being in in a box. It's like I feel like you could like literally show that dude like a picture of a box and be like, Todd, what is this? And he just like. <laughs> He couldn't answer. He'd be like, <laughs> I got no idea. Because he's like such a free spirit and like open mind kind of guy. Um, all right, a couple, couple more and then I, I want to let you go. You, a band I hear you mention a lot that's a band I've been aware of but just have not listened to but need kind of like, why should I check them out? What's my like keyhole into it or, or whatever is Super Chunk. Tell me why I should listen to Super Chunk. I mean, Super Chunk, that was a big one for us like early 90s you know they're from they're from chapel hill and then mac and laura started merge records you know which put out a million amazing records m ward spoon they put out a couple of my solo records i mean tons of stuff like too many to even magnetic fields like too many even to count really um so they had a crazy great label that we kind of like modeled our label like Saddle Creek after in a way like Merge and like Discord were like our big ones that we like were trying to be like and I guess to a lesser degree maybe like Sub Pop but Sub Pop was a little like I don't know they were like bought by a like a or they were like part of like a major label for a while but whatever they're still a cool label but um like what record to start with kind of yeah let's see that um they definitely got more i mean their earliest records like one of their real famous like early songs called slack motherfucker and it's like i'm working i'm not working for you
You know, it's like it's like very like punk rock kind of yeah. Yeah. Brad, bratty punk rock, but like really melodic, like great voice and like like super hooky. Like it's like pop punk, but in a different I mean, I don't know. To me they kind of like were like one of the sort of like inventors of what I think of as like right, indie right. rock, you know. It, to any extent that like Saddle had like a sound or something that was like the bands were pretty different, but I I will say like we learned like the the beauty of like the pause where like dang, dang, right right dang, the dynamic like <laughs> that was like you know that was I mean I guess that was like Fugazi too, but like definitely Super Chunk was um, a part of that. Yeah, I don't know. I would I mean I guess my advice would be just maybe start at the beginning. No, I mean they have a lot of records, so. Okay. I'd say start at the beginning and then just, like, know that as you get further down the line, you know, you're going to get, it gets a little slower and, like, there's a little more, like, there'll be, like, strings and stuff sometimes. So they kind of get more orchestrated. But the the first stuff is, like, very straight up, like, you know, just punk rock. I'm going to do it. Johnny Hobson was a good man He used to loan me books and marks stands He even got me a subscription To the Socialist Review Listening to records in his basement Old folk songs about the government It's love of money, not the market He said these fuckers push on you And freedom yells You guys are coming up in like the late 90s what is the sort of like you guys are playing music making this starting this label everything in omaha <laughs> answer this however you want but like i'm curious what presence in that city and in like music in that city and anything does 311 play what do, what do you think about 311 don't know if you've been asked that before but it's curious you know what no this is no this is like this is this is actually very like um pertinent to my current life um <laughs> which is so 311 was my the band I was talking about that my brother Maddie and McGinn and Casher were all in when they were in high school, like sophomores yeah. in high school. They were called March Hairs, which is a cool name. <laughs> but uh, they uh, they like uh, they opened for 311 a couple times, and so I saw them. And I gotta say, like to us, like and like I said, we were like asshole little indie whatever shitheads <laughs> so to us it was they're kind of like a butt of a joke you know but i gotta say when i started living out in la like i'm kind of i've had a house here for like 10 years but like like my friend like jenny from Warpaint, she like loves them and I, she thought they were from los angeles like dude they're from omaha because they moved to la and then they got famous <laughs> And, right. um, but then my friend, Alex, uh, who's in this band, So So Glows, who's been staying out here with me, and, like, we've been, like, working on music and stuff, but anyway, same thing. He's from New York, but he, like, fully, like, when he was young, so we've been, like, listening to 311, like, all the time, <laughs> and, like, I gotta say, like, I'm, like, I'm, like, I guess I'm coming to it late, but, like, I'm a fan. I think, Absol- like... 
I think like they like like they were like a really weird, interesting band. You know, what I mean, like, because I loved like Raging. I mean, still love Raging Against the Machine, and they're kind of like a little bit like that. But it was like it was like rap rock before rap rock yeah. got really like fratty and stupid. You know, and then they also kind of had like the reggae thing. I don't know. I I think three eleven's tight. I have these specific moments of like like listening to 311 like in my like early 20s and not it was I was doing a little maybe not to the extreme you guys were but a little bit of like <laughs> trying to do the calculus in my head as to whether this is cool for me to listen to or not or whatever but like yeah. three certain bands not every band is like Limp Bizkit and Disturbed or whatever you know well, that, like, just I mean, because they they rap and sing yeah, yeah. no I mean like that, that shit it just got worse and worse I mean it's like 311 was on it. Obviously, Rage was, like, the illest. And then, yeah, once you get into, like, Linkin Park and fucking whatever, Corn and Limpiste and all that shit, like, it just gets more and more fucking it, terrible. It's, but, it's, like, yeah, it's like the things that follow taint what the a memory of the original thing is. Like, I think that's... I think that's happened to Sublime. The band Sublime has so much good music, yeah. and but the carbon, the like copy of a copy of a copy of a white guy reggae band like that, it's like, yeah, kind of the worst possible thing. And down at the end of the line, that like then affects the original in a way, you know? No, for real. No, that's a good point. You kind of like you start associating things that shouldn't really be associated, like yeah, Limp Biscuit and Rage Against the Machine are like polar opposites to me as far as like what they how good they are and what they represent like Limp Bizkit's bullshit and Rage Against the Machine is like one of the like the best bands ever Yeah, but like people like put them in the same fucking bin for some reason I I mean it's it's the same thing that happens with rock music in the Pacific Northwest in the early 90s and emo music in the 2000s and you know it's just tale as old as time kinda yeah um, all right. Well, cool. What uh, you, I know that you had, you talked about the, some more companion EPs. I know you guys are going on another tour. What kind of, in any way you want to answer it? What's sort of ahead for you? What's going? What's next? Well, we're doing this little short tour in May, um, and it's dope because like we had like such a big band last year, which was really cool. We had like John Theodore playing drums, and we had like I don't know, we had like strings and horns and da 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 da. Um, but for this tour, it's just the three of us, like Walcott, Mogus, me, and and Maria and Arinda from Azure. Yeah. Arinda's going to play bass. Maria's going to play drums. She's a sick drummer. Cool. They're both great. Yeah. They both sing, like, perfect harmonies. So just the five of us, um, and we're going to do that little run. And then just been, like, trying to write songs I think that we're going to see how it goes, but I kind of feel like we might start working on another record, like maybe in the fall. 
or something. Nice. We just gotta we gotta like write a lot more between now and then, but assuming we have the songs that we yeah we need to like whatever. I'm sure we can figure it out, but like contractually we need to deliver another record. The pandemic just like made everything crazy because yeah. it was like we're supposed <laughs> to deliver like two records within like five years, and we're like, oh, that's that's really seems like easy. You know, but then like yeah. the pandemic like erased two of the years. So not only a pandemic, but you also decided to re-record fifty old songs in the middle of there <laughs> true. too. That's <laughs> true. Kind of a lot. Um, uh, well, that's exciting. And something that I haven't said that isn't a question is just a thing. Is like I don't know. The pandemic was weird. The time that's a it's a weird period. That first year that that all happened, and so I don't. It was like inexplicable the way down in the weeds initially kind of passed by me. Like I heard a little, but like. And the, the process of revisiting and tracing the Bright Eyes records up to that and getting there and kind of like without getting into it, kind of knowing like the some of the stuff that went into like making that record or some of the things you went through before making that record. That record's amazing. I, I haven't had a swing from like me. I think I was just busy and where was I emotionally? I don't even know. But like really, really loved Down in the Weeds where the world once was. Didn't hallucinate. It wasn't strange Inside the lines I drew Been staying in my lane Wasn't a sign to me I'm not to blame Brown bottles of Jameson Grey ashes in a tray I put out Got cancer sick Thanks, man. I'm really proud of that record. We We put in, like, I mean, we spent, like, over two years making it and like we really we you know it had been so long since we made a record that we wanted to come out you know come out strong and yeah i mean the timing was like the worst possible timing for releasing a record but you know everybody went through that so it was just kind of baked into it but i feel like like a lot of our records like it takes people even like fans like a minute to like get into it like i mean the starkest version of that was like we did the wide awake tour like four months like all around the world and it was like we just basically played that record in other songs and you know it felt like we were like the fucking beatles or something everyone screamed like picture like flat <laughs> still when there was like flashing cameras i remember like Coming on stage and just be like, just flashing cameras. Must talk in every telephone, get eaten off the web. Must rip out all the epilogues from the books that we have read. Into the face of every criminal, strapped firmly to a chair. We must stare, we must stare, we must stare. We must take all of the medicines, too expensive now to sell. Set fire to the preacher who is promising us hell. Into the ear of every anarchist that sleeps but doesn't dream. We must sing, we must sing, we must sing. It'll go like this, all right. And then, like, right away, we did the Digital Ash tour. (laughs) And, like, we didn't play any songs from Wide Awake. And people didn't know what they were buying tickets for. Oh, man. So, like, everyone left just pissed. They were like, like, this is, like, the worst. What the fuck? I wish, like, 
everyone was just mad as hell. And, I mean, I thought they were pretty, like, sick shows, but, like, I mean, the band was good. We had, like, the Faint Dudes, Mm -hmm. and, like, we had... Our shit was pretty dialed, but, like, we just didn't play any songs anyone wanted to hear. And so... Anyway, it just felt like... something deep in you is getting a little bit of... You're getting your little sinister joy out of that. (laughs) But, like, I guess slightly. But then, like... But my point being, like, then, like, ten years later, people were like, oh, Digital Ash is, like, my favorite one. I'm like, well, I wish you would have come to the show, (laughs) because it sure didn't feel like (laughs) that. That's good. No, I I think it came up in the Todd Fink conversation Mm -hmm. that you, you, you put out I'm Wide Awake It's Morning and Digital Ash and Digital Learn, like, next week. And digital hash is, sounds by f- far more like modern music than than the other one now. Like for sure, yeah. confused by like the I mean it's probably the way like it was advertised or something but like it, it, to me like there are a couple songs that have like computer generated beats but really it's just like a rock band with like a lot of like we just were using like mad amounts of delay and effects on like everything like it's not really like an electronic record yeah, I think yeah. that the the title like makes people think it is but I just like the title. It wasn't supposed to be like most of the drums are real. I can only think of like a couple songs that have like program drums. It's like it's kind of just like Michael going crazy with like delay pedals and shit right. like that, you know. Cool. Well, feel like there's anything I haven't asked you about that might be a good that you you'd want to say or that would button this up. I don't know. I was I mean, again, I really admire your stamina to like <laughs> go through go through all this shit and uh, yeah I don't know best of luck with are you got so you kind of do it like each season's like a different band do you know who you're doing next or we can't reveal that at this point no no I've I've thought about I've thought about some I think I'm, I have to become very cognizant like I don't know shit compared to some of these people like I don't there's I can process songs and everything like that but like. I can zag all the way over to like back to something from the 70s, some singer songwriter music, or do something semi adjacent to this. I know I've thought about like a and things. Like, I, I, there's like something in my head that's like, who wants to keep coming along? Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Did you bring your phone? 
Yeah, yeah. Still got the phone. Uh, no, my my shit was like literally about to die. Now you're in my bedroom, so sweet. It's like getting pretty, pretty sexy here. Um, <laughs> this, is the, this is the path. But yeah, no, I think like uh, after the daily, just kind of. I think that can apply to a lot of stuff. It's like you're you're learning about like a flood of material from like someone and like trying to figure it out i don't know i think the title yeah, works yeah no you're looking back you're looking back on it and i also heard there's like a famous french poem that i wasn't aware of that someone told me about it's cool when you find meaning that that you didn't originally intend in something yeah for real um right on um if you ever want to come up and go out and look at birds with tor hansen hit, hit me up dude if you get if you can get me in touch with tor dude i'm i'm, I'm i'll be there you want to see my dog yeah i do tell me about tell me about dog it's petra petra Look at the camera. <laughs> no, this is my little baby. But you said um, t- t- dog's two and a half? She's two and a half. She's really cute. She's, she's cute. She's too actually she's too smart for her own good. She like outsmarts me a lot of times. If you enjoyed that conversation, please subscribe to the podcast so that you're around for what we do next. It'll be cool. Uh, Thank you so much for listening and have a good one.